Welcome to the serialized podcast edition of Paper Arrows, a presentation in six episodes of my master's thesis in geography at the University of California, Berkeley, based on field research I conducted in Honduras in 2000 and 2001. I am the author and narrator, Daniel Graham. Episode 4, Rescuing Patrimonio. Today's podcast begins delving into the politics and practice of environmental conservation in Olancho. It describes the contingent process by which a melange of local and non-local actors gradually cobbled consent among Gualaqueño coffee growers to a new set of cultivation practices and norms that would allow for the creation and maintenance of a new national park in the Sierra de Agalta. This section also identifies a couple of flies in the ointment that would eventually doom the arrangement. First, Olanchano's radically different gloss on the word heritage from the meaning attached to it within the lexicon of global environmental governance reveals an agreement founded on mutual misunderstanding. Second, as we will explore further in episode 5, the weak Honduran central state would prove a faithless guarantor of the fragile compact forged between local farmers and outside conservationists. Part 2. Betrayal. Section 3. Rescuing Patrimonio. The coffee, we sell one part. The other part, I consume. So we don't buy coffee. Rather, life is inexpensive for us because we already have it, see? We sell one part. We buy the dress, the shoes. That, in reality, is patrimonio. To have something that one is taking to survive and which is always there. It endures. It's not like a thing that someone has. A pound of sugar and you drink it up. That's not patrimonio because that goes away. But coffee, yes. We take out production and the plantation remains, see? It continues for years to come. Beto Linares, Sexagenarian Caficultor, from Catacamas, Olancho. This section illustrates an important recent moment in which the Honduran state succeeded in organizing consent around the twin projects of forestry and park preservation among the denizens of Gualaco and the other towns in the vicinity of the heavily forested Sierra de Agalta mountain range. The name given to the Honduran Forest Service at the time of its inception in 1974, the Honduran Forest Development Corporation, was appropriately ambiguous because it allowed for two equally valid interpretations of Codefor's mission, development of forests and development through forests. The agency's creation represented a new national plan for economic development based on foreign exchange derived from the export of raw and value-added timber products, Utting, 1993. By the late 1980s, Codefor's utilitarian forestry mandate would evolve to include preservationist goals for areas designated as cloud forests. The agency's success in convincing Gualaco peasants to abide by new land use restrictions 
would depend on Codefor's ability to assure local residents that adherence to the new conservation rules would be compatible with a continued secure livelihood for themselves and their families. Codefor achieved its goal of creating a population of imperfectly self-regulating conservationists in part by drawing its extensionists from local ranks. A few particularly dedicated extensionists from the area tirelessly worked to show their neighbors how an intact forest could provide material as well as environmental services. In the end, as we will see in the next section, the Honduran central state would ultimately fail to honor the contract painstakingly brokered by its local representatives in Gualaco, thus demonstrating to the embittered Olanchanos the logical impossibility of being a good citizen where there is no good state. When the Honduran National Congress decreed the creation of Sierra de Agalta National Park, PNSA, in 1987, Gualaqueños were angry. Already things had been bad. Throughout the 1980s, people living in the villages and small towns ringing the Sierra de Agalta mountain range in Olancho found themselves besieged on several fronts. Large holders, cattle ranchers mainly, extended and consolidated their holdings in the valleys, thus reducing the land base for small-scale producers and relegating the latter largely to the sloping Serrania, the pine-clad foothills, and the montaña. Pressure and resentment increased in the Serrania in turn as numerous logging outfits began cutting large swaths of timber, both legally and illegally. Now, as encroachment by ranchers and loggers pushed campesinos up the flanks of the Sierra de Agalta, the central state was telling peasants they could no longer even count on continuing access to resources in these mountains that they had long considered their own. But though Decree 1987-87 at a stroke changed the legal status of the heart of the Sierra from that of largely unconsolidated state land to that of a national protected area, the park's creation in a de facto sense would require a steady deployment of discursive and material resources. With development from such international sources as the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, the Peace Corps, and various environmental non-governmental organizations, or ENGOs, the Honduran State Forestry Agency, CODEFOR, became the primary institution charged with demarcating and administering the park. Such a task would be far from easy given the threat the park represented to the poor majority of affected people who considered the continuing possibility of Sweden agriculture and other forms of usufruct within the park's boundaries as essential to their livelihood. The mere idea of national parks was novel and strange in 1980s Honduras, and the terms in which such parks were described made clear to peasants in Gualaco and other affected communities that the PNSA was an appropriation of properly local resources for the benefit of people who had never stepped foot inside the demarcated area, and who probably never would. The first national park in Honduras, La Tigra, had been created as recently as 1952, and conservation enforcement mechanisms were not to be contemplated for decades to come. Before the 1980s, peasants had enjoyed largely uncontested rights of usufruct to much national land, particularly if it was land that no other powerful actor, cattle ranchers in particular, had designs upon. Large tracts of national land in some of the country's lowlands and foothills became the property of landless and land-poor Hondurans in the land colonization schemes of the 1960s and early 1970s. 
Mountainous terrain, such as that found in the Sierra, meanwhile, served as an important subsistence safety valve for the people living in and around the villages in the mountains' immediate vicinity. Much of the impetus for the creation of new parks, like the PNSA, originated outside of Honduras. National parks were in vogue internationally. National park systems came to be seen as a preferred tool for seeing to the conservation of globally valorized aesthetic, recreational, climatic, and genetic resources. See, for example, Newman, 1998. And poor countries like Honduras found it was relatively easy to find financing for projects that hewed to this model. Thus, it became very easy in the late 1980s and early 1990s for Peace Corps volunteers and other conservationists to submit and gain approval for new protected areas throughout the country. Sierra de Agalta National Park became one of 37 Honduran paper parks created in one fell swoop in 1987. See Bonta, 2001. With guidance and funding from AID, it would become the job of Codefor to adapt its forestry mission to include protection of these new parks. Codefor, together with local school teachers and a series of dedicated Peace Corps volunteers, took up the daunting task of convincing villagers that the PNSA was in everyone's interests. Surprisingly, this campaign met with a fair degree of success, albeit after a slow start. Codefor had for years already been working, along with other agencies of the Honduran central state, to link the concepts of forest and nation. Billboards along the highways served and still serve, to remind the traveler to protect the forest for the sake of the country. License plates all read, Cuidemos los bosques, let's care for the forests. Every year, students in rural schoolhouses can earn scholarships for composing poems and songs to the pine tree, and on Arbor Day, the schoolchildren team up with the country's armed forces to plant hundreds of thousands of trees. Lanza 2000. These forest-building, nation-building activities originally revolved around the single goal of maximizing the production of wood products for export. By the late 1980s, however, these campaigns expanded their mandate to encompass, too, the production of citizen peasants who had worked to protect and preserve tracts of forested land that had heretofore been seen as an available common pool resource. But all would not be simple. Since Forest Service employees, teachers, and Peace Corps volunteers alike began employing a standardized lexicon of conservation that originated in the North, questions over the meaning of conservation arose and reverberated in local villages in some unexpected ways. One term in particular became a site of ambivalent meanings and a source of conflict. Borrowing from Northern conservationists' terminology, the heart of the Sierra de Agalta mountain range came to comprise an important part of the so-called national heritage. The United Nations launched its World Heritage Sites program in 1978, and two parks in Honduras received this designation by 1982, thus reinforcing the idea that heritage was something that could and should be shared by all. See UNESCO 2002. The trope of national or world heritage did not sit easily at first with those most directly affected by the creation of the new national park in the Sierra de Agalta. The term used in Spanish to translate the English word heritage is patrimonio, a word that has a special meaning for Honduran peasants that is closely associated with subsistence. See the epigraph that opens this section. 
For an Olanchano, patrimonio refers specifically to natural resources and has historically been conceived as reproducing itself through local spatial and kinship networks, or at any rate, at scales far smaller than the national or the global. For more on patrimonio, see Bonta 2001. Gualaqueños and other denizens of the region have long prized the montaña, coffee, and bananas as their own enduring patrimonios, that is, as their family's source of continuing well-being. These resources, the interconnected patrimonios of local people, were all to be found at least partly within the boundaries of the new park. Therefore, the more inclusive definition of patrimonio worried local people that a zero-sum game was afoot. Their mountains might cease to serve them as a source of refuge and livelihood. These values would likely be lost as the PNSA restricted local people's access to the area's resources so as to open them up for the ostensible benefit of all of Honduras, and indeed, the whole world. The job of environmental educators, then, was to convince members of local communities that real material benefits would accrue to them in exchange for their conscientious stewardship of the park. Evidence suggests this indoctrination happened unevenly. Bonta points out, quote, While in rural areas it was at first unthinkable to lock up perfectly good space, in the towns the idea of parks and conservation preservation was becoming popular. Bonta 2001. There are several reasons this may have been so. Codefor offices were located in towns, and many professional Codefor staffers focused their energies here, resisting hardship assignments in more out-of-the-way places. Much the same pattern held for the school system. Even if a remote village succeeded in having a school built, it nevertheless frequently failed to attract and retain professionally certified teachers who themselves often hailed from larger towns or cities. Also, since towns were home not only to people directly and wholly dependent on agricultural production for their livelihood, conditions in these places were more conducive to the development of a concept of nature that could be abstracted from its ability to put food on the table and shoes on children's feet. Thus, it was possible to see in the urban green patches of Tegucigalpa signs featuring the cartoon depiction of a shoeless paperboy proclaiming the virtues of forest protection. Promulgation of the park and the notion of conservation also seems to have progressed unevenly in terms of economic class, finding purchase more readily among better-off campesinos and local professionals than among families whose survival depended on at least occasional access to untitled lands in the mountains. Preservation of the parklands from future peasant incursions would require peasant sedentarization, which necessarily meant a shift away from peasants' traditional, extensive, slash-and-burn technique. Anti-burning campaigns and land-titling projects became the order of the day, and it gradually became common sense throughout Honduras that seasonal burning was a source of national shame. But though nearly all Hondurans learned to intone invectives against the scourge of slash-and-burn agriculture, smoke did not cease to fill the country's valleys at the start of each dry season. Very simply, the entry costs to alternative agricultural methods remained prohibitive to the poorest farmers. A single 100-pound sack of urea alone costs as much as an unskilled laborer could earn in a week in the field. And the experimental application of green manures, such as velvet bean, 
carried with it production risks that some farmers simply could not afford to take. Also, as Janssen and Rokas have discussed in the Western Honduran context, the country's land titling initiatives have only modernized land insecurity rather than eliminate or reduce it. Janssen and Rokas, 1998. Finally, the community's incremental acceptance of the idea of conservation for all progressed in largely unpredictable, contingent ways. For example, one of the leading conservationists in the Gualaco village of Elokutal today, Adelmo Celaya, began his path toward an environmentalist mindset with a lie he told in order to qualify for an expenses-paid workshop on gardening techniques. At that time, in the early 1990s, Adelmo had only a tiny parcel planted in garden vegetables, less than the minimum cultivated area necessary to receive consideration for the workshop scholarship. He got into the seminar by misrepresenting his gardening experience and the size of his garden. Adelmo's participation in the gardening workshop helped pad his resume enough that he was able to vie successfully a few years later for a special training seminar in the United States that was offered to a handful of promising Honduran agricultural innovators come community leaders. Adelmo credited his 1997 trip to the United States, as well as his collaboration with a U.S.-based ENGO and support from AID, with awakening in him an ecologist's sensibility. By mid-2001, he was able to speak with pride about the 80 manzana, or 140-acre, nature reserve that he was building, bit by bit, with money from his own savings. In an interview, Adelmo spoke excitedly about the money he had spent buying mahogany and guanacaste seeds, about his cultivation on the reserve of several species of trees that others regarded as worthless trash species because he knew they performed a function as vital bird habitats and about his purchase of a mating pair of iguanas, which were hunted and eaten by local people, who Adelmo magnanimously explains were unaware of the animal's protected status on his private reserve. Codefor and the Peace Corps actively sought out entrepreneurial spirits like Adelmo to proselytize on their behalf. But in the first few years following the enactment of Decree 1987-87, the going was rough. For one thing, many Codefor officials themselves questioned the new save-the-forest ethic. After all, they were trained as foresters, not as preservationists. See Bonta, 2001. Open skepticism abounded in communities that depended on the forests. A few true believers were voices crying out in the proverbial wilderness. Codefor employees also suffered from a well-earned credibility deficit, the organization was widely and accurately rumored to be thoroughly riddled with corrupt practitioners and hypocritical policies. One Codefor employee who won the respect and the ear of Gualaqueños was Darío Aguilar. Aguilar, himself a Gualaqueño from one of the area villages, strongly believed that local people's protection of the new national park was their best option. A united front between peasants and the conservationist element within the state might stand a fighting chance against the powerful ranching and timber interests that were continuously shaving away at the region's common pool resources. Aguilar, an avid deer hunter, was not a starry-eyed preservationist, but he did believe in the importance of the ecological functions performed by trees and forests, and he was optimistic about the prospects for developing ecotourism in the area. 
Together with Peace Corps volunteers whom Aguilar befriended and solicited for technical and other assistance, he spread the good news to gatherings in mountain villages and hamlets along the park's northwest margin. Farmers could become hoteliers, day laborers would find work as tour guides, and the area would gain renown as a glittering showcase of Honduras's impressive natural bounty. For the hamlet of El Ocutal, the nearby Chorros de Babilonia, Babylonia Falls, an impressive series of falls totaling more than 1,500 vertical feet, symbolized, among other things, the promise of future prosperity for the town. For those who would believe in Aguilar's prophesied tourist throngs, only when they saw them with their own eyes, there was one other major point to bolster the foresters' claim that the park's designation would not be anathema to local people's future livelihood. The park would be divided into two zones. A nuclear zone, quote, off-limits for all uses except ecotourism and scientific research, end quote, Bonta 2001, and a buffer zone to which local peasants would have a continuing, if provisional, right of usufruct. Slash-and-burn agriculture was out, but people's production of coffee and bananas by organic means could continue uninterrupted. In fact, these uses were protected against any future development projects that were not expressly contemplated within the pages of the park's management plan. No management plan for the park, in fact, existed, or exists as of this writing. Theoretically, then, peasants' theretofore informal use of this state land was afforded legitimacy and some semblance, or facsimile, of permanence. Of particular importance to people living in many villages were the extant and growing coffee plantations. Just upriver of the first plunge of the Chorros de Babilonia, more than 60 families from the vicinity of El Ocutal Gualaco held small parcels planted in coffee. Ulloa et al. 2000. In other communities, too, coffee represented a real and relatively egalitarian prospect for making a living. Testimony by Beto Linares, a Catacamas resident and owner of a three-Manzana coffee finca, shows how coffee was important to big landholders, small peasants, and wage laborers alike. I was raised since I was little beneath the coffee trees. Before, since we didn't have our own, we worked the land of other patrones. Since we were little, we would go up mountain at four in the morning with lights through the mountains to help those who had land. That's how we lived. Today I have a little parcel there in El Murmullo on which I labor because I love the montaña. I love going for those few days that we go to harvest the coffee. I was 16 when I began to work my own parcel. I didn't have much strength yet, but I did it. And that little parcel I sold to a nephew of mine because I wanted him also to enter into the patrimonio. And I moved further in, and I bought another parcel of scrub, and I went back to planting. That's how all of us live, having a little bit. Gradually, then, this conservation campaign, which emphasized the protection of coffee production, began to show results. Some people likely viewed statements about the ecological and aesthetic properties of the forest as nothing more than platitudes to be recited on cue. On the other hand, a significant contingent of people living in the towns, villages, and hamlets surrounding the Sierra evidently internalized the ethic in a thoroughgoing way. One such person was Adelmo, who by 2001 would blanch at the thought of throwing a candy wrapper on the ground, and who eulogized the forest for its ability to keep the soil spongy and oxygenated. 
Adelmo became a guarda recursos, a resource guardian, under the joint aegis of CODEFOR and the Protected Areas Administration Project, or PAR. This job, which he still keeps, is to inventory the state of his patch of the forest and to report observed offenses of the PNSA's restrictions. Adelmo does not indicate that any of his neighbors resents his diligent performance of these duties. In fact, Adelmo is one of the most widely respected leaders within his community. His fellow villagers' forbearance with Adelmo's punctiliousness likely owes in no small part to the fact that Codefor and Par never follow up on any of Adelmo's suggestions for citations. Adelmo exemplifies, though in an exaggerated way, the many Hualaqueños who came to accept the notion that patrimonio could be for everyone including themselves. After all, Adelmo reasoned with me, it is impossible to separate one place's air from another's with a curtain. But Adelmo and the other villagers of the area were holding the central state accountable for much more than air. Implicit in their acceptance of the new park was a social contract that would obligate the state to protect local people's customary right to cultivate and harvest bananas and coffee in the montaña and generate lucrative jobs in the ecotourism sector. Certainly with the benefit of hindsight, however, there were good reasons to harbor doubts about the state's will and capacity to make good on its end of the deal. As we have mentioned earlier, the Honduran central state is far from monolithic. On the contrary, it often strains for coherence and cohesion. Intra- and interagency contradictions as well as the inconsistency and unpredictability of institutions' policies over time render nearly any branch of the Honduran state a shifty and undependable business partner. Recent Honduran history is rife with examples of one state hand apparently not knowing what the other is doing. It was with a sense of outrage that Beto related to me that the National Agrarian Institute, INA, was engaged in assigning land titles to needy applicants within the boundaries of Sierra de Agalta National Park. While Bonta certainly recognizes the Honduran state's interdepartmental and temporal incoherence, indeed he witnessed this firsthand as a Peace Corps volunteer working in the regions in the early 1990s, as did I in the late 1990s. He credits the central state's very weaknesses and limitations with providing the conditions that allowed Sierra de Agalta National Park to become more acceptable to people in the area. He points out, in fact, that, quote, some local people who work for the PNSA find that they are successful in their jobs in direct relation to their disobedience of the absolutist conservation laws, end quote, Bonta 2001. These important observations notwithstanding, recent events shed much light on the dangers attendant with casting one's lot with a state that cannot or will not keep its promises. It is to these events that we will now turn. Mm-hmm.